Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13 as we continue our series through the second half of the book of Genesis and consider God's faithfulness and the call to our faithfulness in light of His. Abraham, I did not have an ideal childhood by any stretch of the imagination, but I will say one thing about my childhood that was, I think, ideal, and that was the amount of and the kind of play that I experienced as a child. I was a kid, and I hung out with kids and had a neighborhood filled with kids who could play. I mean, get home at the end of the day, dirty, sweaty, and exhausted kind of play, right? Um, it, actually, one of the things that makes me sad is that it seems in our society that kind of play keeps decreasing, and nobody even gets hurt anymore when they play. It's kind of disappointing. So uh, there are all kinds of rules. I'm always amazed. My, I'll never forget we adopted Caroline. She didn't know any English, and we took her to Garden Hill Park. And in five minutes, she's playing with all these kids and actually running the whole production. Um, <laughs> somehow, in Mandarin, she was able to, to organize everything and tell kids what to do. It's just amazing. I watch my kids go to a pool, and in five minutes, they're friends with kids. Five minutes later, they're fighting with kids. Five minutes later, they've made up and they've moved on. It's just so refreshing, right? Well, kids make up these rules, right? There are all these rules that kids make up and then agree to hang in there with, and it causes big problems when they don't. Well, one of the best rules as a kid was the do-over. <laughs> Do-overs were great. I, I, we played in the street a lot, and we'd be playing wiffle ball or baseball on the street, and I, you'd be going back, catching a fly ball, and a car would come around the corner. And if you don't want to take your life in your hands, you... Just let the ball go, and then it's do-over. You do a do-over, right? And everybody agrees to that. Now, sometimes it'd be sketchy when people call it do-over. Like, oh, I wasn't ready. Well, oh, come on. And um, <laughs> so do-overs don't just always go, but do-overs are great. And I actually encourage you in your relationships to practice do-overs, right? Like, oh, that didn't come out right. Do-over. And, <laughs> and things like, I take that back. Give each other permission to take things back. It's one of the best rules you can do. You know, let me take that one back. Okay, and you start over. It's beautiful. But we can have a hard time being as simple and charitable as kids sometimes in the playground. But I want you to know that all that can change if you believe that God is a God who invented the do-over. God is a God of do-overs. The God who made us is also the God who saves us through his son. And he's the God who's in this relationship with us, who is the God of do-overs. Some of you may be sitting there just mired in shame and discouragement and disappointment and failure in your life that haunts you. Well, God delights in do-overs. He's the God of grace. Not because he has to, because he's stuck with this divine character he really wished he didn't have, but because he is gracious, extravagantly, overflowingly gracious. And I want you to know that. This morning in Genesis 13, Abram gets a beautiful do-over. We saw last week as Jackson preached that Abram failed miserably in Egypt. There was a famine, a conflict, a difficulty that often, as we saw, causes us to have our faith tested. And his faith was tested, and it didn't survive very well. 
because he actually made his wife vulnerable. He took matters into his own hands and lied about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife. And she ended up in Pharaoh's harem. And bad things happened in Egypt. And Pharaoh was ticked at Abram. And he finally left. But it, it, was, a, it was a failure of faith. So this one who left his homeland, Ur, because God called him to, and he left in great faith and he trusted God's promises, wavered. He wavered in his faith, in his trust in God. And it's good to read these stories because they're so real. They're so much like our stories. Of, of all the reasons I believe the Bible is true and the Word of God, and there are lots of reasons, one of the biggest reasons I continually trust the Bible is because of how incredibly accurately it describes the human condition. How amazingly accurate it describes my own heart and my circumstances and, and realities of my life. The Bible's so real. It's not trying to be a hagiography, but, but just blowing these heroes up to be saints you know, that are so distant from us and we can never be like them. No, they are failures, and they fail miserably at times, even the greatest heroes except for Jesus. They all fail, and Abraham it certainly did as well. So he gets a wonderful do-over in chapter 13 after this miserable failure in Egypt, and it's a beautiful thing to see because we're encouraged by it. So let's read Genesis 13 together and learn along with Abraham. So Abram went up from Egypt. Realize how important just that image is. Going up from Egypt. He went down to Egypt because of the, the famine. Egypt becomes this symbol in the Bible of a place God's people go instead of going to God. It's this place where they end up in captivity. It's this place where they end up blending in so much to the surrounding people in Egypt that they don't look distinct anymore. Egypt symbolizes in the Bible this place where God's people get messed up. And so here he leaves. So even symbolically, he's leaving Egypt. That's a good sign. And he and his wife and all he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. That word that's translated rich here in my English Standard Version, fascinatingly, is the same word, and I think there's an intentional connection here. Same word translated differently because of the context, but same word back in chapter 12, verse 10. Not to describe riches, but to describe famine. You could translate this word weighty, um, uh, significant, so uh, numerous, right? So, so his, his riches, his possessions are weighty, and so was the famine. So we have a test again. One of the tests is a famine, lack. The second test is possessions. It's plus on the ledger. You know, tests can come in both ways. It's not just lack that leads us to tests of faith. Sometimes it's possession. Sometimes it's blessings. Sometimes it's things we have. The human heart is just astounding in its ability to turn just about anything into an idol. Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. 
That's what it does. It just punches out idols like an assembly line. And so we can take blessings, turn them into things we put our trust in instead of God. We can take burdens like famines and do the same thing. So here we have that same word, rich, and back in the previous chapter, severe. So here now, the possessions are weighty, are rich in livestock, silver, gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, the house of God, to the place where his, listen, tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now watch what happens. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and, t- and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not, there it is again, dwell together. And here's the result. There was strife, conflict between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So we've got a crowded situation between these foreign peoples who are in the land still and now Abraham's people and his possessions and Lot's people and possessions. We've got some crowding going on, at least in their estimation, and it leads to strife. It leads to difficulty. And there's a challenge here once again to his faith. And I I want you to realize how gracious God is with Abram here, allowing him this do-over, which God does repeatedly. This God who is the God of Abraham and our God as followers of Abraham's seed who came, Jesus, this God is gracious. I want you to know this morning that here he is, he goes back to the beginning, right? He goes back to where this pilgrimage, this journey started. And that's what he is. He's a pilgrim. He's a, he's a sojourner. He's not home yet. And I want you to notice three words that frame, I think, in a beautiful way, this whole journey. The first is tent in verse 3. He goes back to the beginning. He gets a reboot. He gets a, a do-over from God here. He goes back to where the journey started, and he puts his tent there. Where his tent had been at the beginning, he puts it there again. That image of a tent is very important for us as followers of Jesus because we are not home yet. I can't emphasize that enough. Faithful lives come from realizing we're not home yet. Realizing that our home awaits us, that Jesus is preparing for us, and that means this isn't the last stop. This isn't the whole story. It's certainly not the end of the story, and that enables us to let our hands off of the things of this world as if this is all there is, and trust God with the things of this world and of eternity as well. And so so we start with this tent image. God's people aren't home yet. Don't set up shop here as if this is all there is. Have a tent mentality 
with your body, which is called a tent in the New Testament, and with your possessions, with everything in this life, have a temporary mentality toward all the things in this life. We can act so differently than that, though. In our attitude, in our decisions, in our actions regarding this life and the things of this life. We can cling to the things of this life as, that's, as if that's all there was, including life in this body, this side of heaven, as if that's all there is. But we can be freed from that with a sojourner mentality, a pilgrim mentality that a tent should bring to mind. But the second image is an altar. There was a tent where the whole thing started and that he now returns to, but there's an altar there too. What does an altar represent? What happens at an altar? Talk to me. Sacrifice. What else? What is that sacrifice? It's worship, right? It's sacrificial worship. That's why I love that what we're doing right now is called a service. It's a worship service. Perfect word for what we're doing. We're offering something to God. And, and that's, that means if we come as consumers, we're missing the whole point. We offer to God service of worship, and that altar represents that. So when he returns to the beginning and gets a, a do-over, it it's something he does with a sense of the temporary nature of this life. It's something he does with a sense of worshipful, sacrificial posture before God. And the last word, tent, altar, is he called on the name of the Lord. See in verse 4? He Abram called on the name of the Lord. Realize that our calling on his name, in other words, going to God with our needs, going to God with our perspective, letting him determine our lives. Our calling on God begins with God's calling on us. He has a calling on our lives. Our lives are not something we determine for ourselves in some autonomous way as if we were God. No, God's calling on, his, on the lives of his people is very clear. And it is the initiation calling that then leads to our calling on the Lord. Because he's called you as his child, as one of his people, because he's called you as a minister of the gospel, because he's called you because of your faith in Jesus to be set apart as a holy one of God, your life looks radically different than it would otherwise so we live in our tents we have our altars and we call upon the name of the Lord because he called us like he called Abraham out of Ur he calls all of us out of darkness into light he calls all of us out of death into life in the son who is the life and so everything changes everything starts over again for him and he returns to the tent the altar and the call and now it's different. And, and please realize, as you think about the God of the do-over, a couple of things will uh, disconnect your appreciation for God's grace, his compassion, that he's the God who runs down the road to greet his prodigal son. And it, one of the things that will do it is, is believing God is like you instead of how he is. And we and that God's like me, we run out of patience, we run out of grace, we run out of energy. We are so often limited in our ability to be like he is that we assume he's like we are. And the second thing is comparing. If you compare your pilgrimage, your journey in your relationship with God to other people, it'll be very discouraging to you probably. Or it'll puff you up because you haven't done those things. 
And so kill comparison, or it'll kill you. Don't compare yourself to other people in their relationships with God and what it looks like and how it started and where it seems to be heading. Just say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. I taught a spiritual disciplines class at Wheaton when I was teaching there back in the 90s. And the first thing I had everybody do was graph their relationship with Christ with, with up here on the graph being ideal and here where it started. And, and it was fascinating. We did it on overhead transparencies. Remember those? Yes. Um, and, and then we put them on the overhead so everybody could see everybody's relationship with God and how it progressed. And the thing that impressed us all more than anything else is how different everybody's graphs looked. Some were these steady lines toward the ideal. Some were steady lines and then a big jump and then a steady line again somewhere like ekgs up and down right and in finding out what those events in life that led to those things was sobering and encouraging but what impressed us more than anything is how different our graphs looked and so we all came away with a sense of we better not compare And so we have examples we look to in faithfulness that we want to be like because they're following Jesus, but we don't compare as if all our stories need to look the same. And so Abram's life is an encouragement to us because like our lives, like Peter's life, like every even great well-known Christian's lives have compromise, failure, faithlessness. And so we go to the tent and we go to the altar and we go to the call and we trust God and we see that conflict arised, right? It arose in this context. They, they had conflict. Now what led to the conflict? Three things. Possessions, proximity, and pride. How's that? Uh, you, you realize that very often possessions cause conflict. It's amazing that on Christmas morning, 10 minutes after a gift is given, possessiveness rears its ugly head. Don't touch it! Right? Immediately, the human heart kicks into gear, and we're suddenly possessive and petty about a gift. Right? And sometimes that gift gets taken away on Christmas morning. Yes. Talk about a cloud over the whole thing. Yeah, because that's how we are. And I just want to point out, I am amazed sometimes at how much like a five-year-old child I am still at 53. I'm way more sophisticated than I was in my selfishness than when I was five. But sometimes I wonder if I've made any progress. (laughs) A lot of times I just keep it inside. Right? But it's amazing how a five-year-old yeah, just rears its ugly head inside of me. And it's something we all need to realize, that we get, we get better at it as if we're appearing that we're not bickering and arguing and selfishly pursuing what we think we deserve, but it's so embedded in the human heart that it'll never to completely go away till we see Jesus face to face. And acknowledging that is really important. Getting that on the table and realizing that this, that possessions can become burdens. Even blessings from God can become burdens. It's amazing 
that the gifts of God can become sources of strife, sources of conflict, sources of rancor and sin in our hearts. And maybe you don't have a lot of possessions. Relative in this context, maybe you're just sort of struggling to get by. But realize every one of us is prone to selfishness and putting too much in what I have or don't have. Jesus warns the rich man often, but we all need to be on guard for these things in our hearts that go there. I remember talking to a friend of mine. He, didn't, he was a missionary kid who was raised on the mission field uh, in a, a very poor country, very poor town. And I said, hey, Sean, why don't you have the typical, he was a college student, I said, why don't you have the typical missionary kid cynical negativity toward Americans and American Christianity that MKs usually come back with? And he said, oh, I used to have that a lot. But then I realized that materialistic attitudes and selfishness is not something Americans have a monopoly on. He told me about this guy in the village he grew up in that had this, for our context, a really cheap watch. But he was the only guy in the village who had a watch. So he walked around like a peacock, all proud of his watch, right? And he, and he said, you know, I realized we are all prone to this. Now, we need to hear the warning, those of us who have a lot. But it's something in the human heart we need to realize possession. So possessions was the first problem they had. But proximity was the other one. They can't let, dwell in the land together. You know how the Bible says how good and pleasant it is when brethren can dwell together. Well, here, we don't have that goodness and pleasantness. The, the proximity. Isn't it amazing how proximity can heighten conflict? Being close. There are relationships I have in my life that improve dramatically when I move thousands of miles away. It's just amazing how well we get along now, right? When it, there's not proximity. I, Don and I have never argued more in our marriage in our going on 29 years of marriage than when we're on trips. The vacation, yay, fun, we're on vacation. But there's, you're, they're there the whole time, right? You can't go, even go across the house, they're right there, like three feet away, and every decision is made collectively. Where do you want to eat? Should we stop for a bathroom? Should we stop for gas? No, we got more time. And, and, and before you know it, it's simply being together all the time increases the conflict. Possessions and proximity, but you can do possessions and proximity, but once pride is inserted, we're in trouble. Right? We've got pride. We've got, I deserve this. This is mine. I'm asserting myself over you. This sinful instinct we all have at the heart of all our problems. Mine! And we scream since our youngest days, and even though we may not do it, to the same volume. I know in my heart it often is the same volume internally. I just don't want to lose my job so I keep it in, right? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just realize, oh my, our hearts are just prone to petty, self-absorbed attitudes that just will cause all sorts of conflict. So pride gets involved and we're really in trouble. It's amazing, isn't it, how proximity can do this? The pride gets highlighted. So you have these, we're, we're just the best of friends. I'll talk to people, oh, we've just so bonded our freshman year. Next year, guess what? We're going to be roommates. We decided to move in together. I'm like, uh-oh. 
right? Because we all know that the best of friends can become bitter enemies as soon as we've got to share everything, right? And make all these daily decisions, proximity. Putting people actually close together can cause all kinds of problems. So we, we've got to realize what a battle we're in when we think about the realities we're in every day. And quarreling, I knew the Bible had a lot to say about quarreling, arguing, bickering, fighting, but when I was preparing for this, I couldn't believe how much it had to say about it. No quarrel, don't quarrel, don't bicker, don't fight. It's all over the Bible. One preacher puts it this way, the less our energies are consumed in asserting ourselves and scrambling for our rights and cutting in before other people so as to not get the best places for ourselves, the more we shall have to spare for better things. And the more we live in the future and leave God to order our ways, the more shall our souls be wrapped in perfect peace. Oh, it's amazing how somebody cutting me off on the five can ruin my day, even if I'm not late. Like, oh, that was my 13 feet of the highway. What are you doing? Oh, road rage, right? The happiest place on earth, Disneyland. All these lines, like, I'm going to get my, it's for the sake of my family. I'm cutting in here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal. Man. Even kids have to make up all these rules at the water fountain. Like, the one I just heard, no cuts, no butts, no coconuts. I don't know if you've heard that. It's, it's all these rules that like, I hear my kids talking about. It, it's amazing. We've got jockeying per, for position all the time. See, here I am, and here you are. See? That's how we live so often in our lives, and we've got to go to war with it. Listen to how many. I, mean, I could read hundreds of verses for you, just a, a few. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know how they breed quarrels? Paul says to Timothy, and the, ser and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have convictions and opinions. It doesn't mean we don't have really good arguments. It doesn't mean you're a doormat and you get walked over. But what it means is you're able to decide what's important and what is relatively not important. You get your own pride out of the equation. We put our self-righteousness to death in the good argument. And now it's a very different argument. It's actually constructive and not just winning a war. It's very different. The whole thing goes down entirely differently. Listen to this verse. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind. And judgment. There are divisions in the church in Corinth. And so in, in right in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul just says, I don't want divisions. I don't want arguing. I don't want dissension and disagreement. Make it right. And so Abraham makes it right in this situation. Abram goes to Lot. And he makes it right. He, he takes the initiative. Watch, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. He takes the initiative. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, literally, we are, we are men, brothers. We're family. Let's act like it. 
Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Do you realize when Abram does this, he is breaking with cultural convention, with all the expectations. He's not determined here by what the culture would dictate. He's older. He's the uncle. He's the one with whom the covenant was made. He has every right to take whatever he wants in this context. And he doesn't let those things determine what he does. He lets a big-hearted faithfulness and generosity reign because he's trusting God here. That's, that's what he's able to do in this context. And watch Lot. He's so different. And Lot lifted up his eyes. Watch. Pay attention to the eyes and the seeing. We're going to get back to it later when God talks to Abram. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Like what? The garden of the Lord. Lot. It's not the garden of Eden, dude. But that's how it looks to him. He's lost perspective. He's, it's to him like the garden of the Lord. It's well watered. It's the prime property to be sure in this context. But he's not seeing things rightly. He's losing perspective here. Like the land of Egypt. Well watered like the Nile. Well not quite Lot. He's losing perspective. Abram's gaining it. Lot's losing it. In the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Wah, wah. We just had a bad foreshadowing of where Lot's heading. We'll have another one. So Lot chose for himself, not with Abram's best interest in mind, but himself, all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Watch this. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It's not irrelevant that Lot chooses land really as far away from the promised land within it still that you can get right on the border of a very wicked people. The land looked better, but it was the worst decision he ever made. He put himself out of God's promises when he moved in that direction toward a wicked people. So Abram does an amazing thing. He is able to trust God and give the land that he rightly could claim, but he doesn't do that. I love that he takes the initiative. And when we have conflict, we've got to take the initiative. We cannot wait around for others to take the initiative. Well, if they would like to talk to me, they know where to find me. We're taking the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. Realize that one of the commands the Bible gives about the Lord's Supper is if you have unforgiveness, if you have unresolved conflict that you actually should have done something about and you haven't done it yet, the Bible says don't take it. It's saying if you saunter up here with an unforgiving heart, you're taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. Churches should probably build in a 20-minute buffer between the worship service and then taking the Lord's Supper so we can all go out there with our cell phones and say, uh, Ma, sorry about what I said last night. And, and, and make things right. Because we can have unresolved conflict that we should have done something about that we haven't. As it is up to you, be at peace with all men. So we realize, what role do I play in this conflict? 
What do I need to do about it? Because I need to have a generous, forgiving heart. And that's what Abram has here. He takes initiative. And he, in the fear of the Lord, seeks the wise path. And he trusts God and he gives boldly. Trust God and give boldly. And why wouldn't you be that way? You know what the Bible says? What do you have that you didn't receive? That wasn't given to you. Everything you have is gift. Why would you be possessive of anything? Abraham was magnanimous. He had a big heart. He had a generous, open-hearted, hand-opened heart here. He didn't demand his rights as cultural custom would have had him, but he humbled himself and sacrificed what he had coming his way for something greater. He was generous, and we need to be generous as well. Our faith in God's promises coming true enable us to not take matters into our own hands and leads to big-heartedness, a generosity with our possession, with our time, with our energy, with our emotions, with our rights that we actually may have but are willing to give up. He broke from all the social expectations and convention and a sinful heart that would have kept him there, and, and he does what is best and wise, and he takes initiative to do it. Not a lot. The land seemed like Eden to him. And let me just pause here and say, it's not just with possessions, with money we want to be generous with. We need to ask God to show us ways he wants each of us to be more generous. Maybe it's with our emotions. Maybe it's with our time. Maybe it's with our, our gifts he's given us that we need to use more generously. Maybe it's just in our conversational style. Are you someone in a conversation who's giving who isn't mostly concerned about people knowing you and knowing all the things you've done and how successful you are? Or is there a generosity in conversations? Do you ask questions about others? Do you look for ways to help them accentuate good in them? There can be a conversational generosity in our relationships. Is there an other focus, an other-centeredness? Do you get out of what comes easily in a comfortable way for you to move toward others for their good? Is there a conversational big-heartedness and generosity in your life that you can point to? Is there a generosity in your ability to find good in other people, be a grace detective, and point it out? Even in the midst of plenty to criticize, can you find good things to affirm and encourage and highlight in people? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that peacemaking begins with generous hearts. It begins with walking by faith and not by sight. That's how the whole thing begins for us. That's why Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. God takes care of them. Won't he take even better care of you, you of little faith? Can't you trust God? That leads you to a big-hearted generosity. Don't be anxious, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. For sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Abram has a generosity grounded in his faith. And what happens? God blesses him. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Remember, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the possessions he wanted. 
And now God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He's reemphasizing, reiterating, reaffirming the covenant. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. He blesses his faithfulness and Lot's selfishness heads him in a very troubling direction. Abram put his faith in what he could not see. Lot put his faith in what he could. We have faith for today. As we go, as the hymn we've sung around here lots of times, a day's march nearer home. We move our tent a day's march nearer home every day, and we seek God's blessing, and we trust Him and His provision, His generosity, and our greed goes away. Now, it's important for us to realize that Abram is a great example for us here, but he's just a little glimmer of the ultimate faithfulness we see in God in sending his son for us. And in his son who faithfully trusted his father and came for the joy set before him. That's what Jesus came for. He's the one who came to us, left his home in heaven and came to us and offered his life on an altar of sacrifice. And he called in the name of the Lord, and he trusted him, and he went to a cross, and he died in our place. And because of that, he is our example. That's why Philippians 2 says, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. How? Why? Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus who although he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, demanded, but opened his hands and his heart and made himself nothing and taking the form of a servant and being made in human likeness, he took our place. He died for us and he rose for us. He gave a sacrifice that was sufficient, that Abraham's altar points us to. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. He is our peace, it says in Ephesians 2. He gives us peace because he came to reconcile enemies that we were before God and now we're friends because of his work. He gave up, like like Abram points us to, his possessions of uninhibited glory for all of eternity, of perfect fellowship with the Father he heard, Depart from me. He says, why do you forsake me to the Father? He gave up the greatest treasures of eternal glory he had for us. 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, though he had a rightful claim to all his riches, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's who Jesus is for us. And look how it all ends for Abram and for us. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It all ends in worship. That's where it all ends. That's what it's all for. Just like Philippians 2 where Jesus is our example, but then he's our sufficient sacrifice, and what's the culmination of all that? Every knee will bow one day 
before the glory of Christ. And that's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We come here and we partake of these most simple elements of, uh, of symbols of his body and blood and we dip the bread in the cup and we're reminded of what he did for us as our sufficient sacrifice. What he did for us as the one who substituted in our place and was punished so we don't have to be. This table represents the greatest display in all of human history of open-handed, open-hearted, joyful generosity. That's what this is. God's generosity toward us. So come sobered in the fear of the Lord by this and come joyfully with glee that Jesus gave everything he had and everything we needed in the process. If you have dietary restrictions, there's... Uh, an option over there for you. If you've never taken the Lord's Supper here, we come up and we receive it from these priests who are offering these symbols of Jesus' body and blood for us. And then you take it on your own when the time comes. If the ushers would, uh, if the servers would come forward, let me pray for us. Lord, help us now as we go to this most serious and sobering and joyful, happy table. Would you help us to do it with a confidence that you're the God of the do-over and uh, we have the great do-over in Jesus. Lord, thank you for the, the fresh start he gives us when we trust him in saving faith, but then every day of our lives and our failures, you're there to apply your amazing grace again. Lord, I pray that you would help us now to go deeper in our trust in you as we take the Lord's Supper together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.